All right, as, as we get started, again, if you, if you haven't picked up a sheet, you will want that. Uh, there are a few Bibles still left up here. Hopefully you have one. Uh, like last week, we will be uh, all over the Bible again today. If you were here last week and you thought we were going 80 and a 75, uh, you, you were right. Today we're going to push on the accelerator a little bit more and try to go about 85 and a 75. Now, if we don't get through all of it, that's fine. We'll uh, sort of just roll some of that into uh, our third week. But there is, there is quite a bit here uh, that we're going to try to get after. So uh, let's do this. As we get in this morning, let's, let's just have a word of prayer. Good and gracious Father, we say thank you that you draw us here again to come under your word, to listen, to learn, to be shaped. And Father, we pray for the wisdom and the insight that only you can give as we try to understand the conflict that is happening uh, not only in Israel and Palestine, but conflict that happens all over the world. But today, Father, we, we want to get to the bottom of the question, uh, who is Israel? So that as disciples of Jesus, as people who are trying to orient our lives around your Son and our Lord, Lord, we would think and love, and behave in appropriate ways. So to that end, good Father, we pray for your blessing and the outpouring of your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, as we get started this morning, uh, just again, briefly at your table, if you are here last week, or you're on Tuesday morning, or you listen to the podcast, I'd love for you just to write individually for a moment, maybe for like a minute and 15 seconds, like what was one or two insights that you gained from last week, right? What was one or two insights that you gained uh, from last week? So just jot a couple things down. I'm going to give you some time here at the table in a second, but just individually for a moment. Uh, what were some of the insights from week number one? All right, I'd love for you to take maybe three minutes just around your table. What were some of those insights? All right, what were some of the things that you gained? Uh, some, of the, some of the clarity that came? Or maybe, uh, what are some of the questions that lingered? That's fine as well. So three minutes at your table, and then we'll come back and start diving through. All right, go. Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, good job. Well done. Uh, from, from the level of conversation, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to guess that there were some insights for you. Uh, super thankful to the number of people who contacted myself or Pastor Adam over the course of the week and just beginning to think about what's happening in Israel and Palestine, perhaps in a slightly broader way. And that's what we said the purpose was, right? Is to help us understand with a little bit more depth and maybe a little bit more breadth to what's happening there so that we, so that we as followers of Jesus know how best to respond. A couple of things that I just want to re-get us centered in before we uh, get started with the question today of who is Israel. 
Uh, but the first thing, right, if you weren't here last week or didn't uh, go to Tuesday morning Bible study or you didn't listen to the podcast, the first thing, of course, that I think is really, really important is P-A-N-D-G, right? Uh, just, just keeping that truth in front of us matters deeply, right? P-A-N-D-G, people are no damn good, right? That's, that is a biblical truth, uh, not one that Pastor Brian came up with and certainly not Pastor Ken, uh, who gave me the mug, right, reminding me that that's true for me and the rest of you. Uh, but that every conflict, Jesus says, every evil thought, every conflict comes out of the human heart, Right. And so the conflict that's happening in Israel and Palestine, the conflict that's happening in the Ukraine and Russia, like that, those conflicts begin in the human heart. As we said last week, no amount of policy fixes the human heart. Right. It's an internal problem. Right. Jesus is the thing that fixes the heart. Right. Now, policies matter, and how we behave through laws matter. But if we don't get this truth, if we don't understand, right, that evil begins inside, it's a heart problem, and Jesus is the solving of that heart problem, and it doesn't matter what we talk about in terms of policy. So at the very, very, very beginning, we have to hold this truth, that everybody is broken, and that there's nobody in the right, right, there's no exceptions. Everybody begins in a place of brokenness. Number two, or in this case on the sheet, number three, the origins of the present-day conflict between Israel and Palestine, right, they began with the descendants of Abraham, both Ishmael and Isaac, descendants who were to receive the covenant promise of land. So in other words, the conflict over the land has deep theological roots, a conflict that will only be solved, as we said last week, uh, when Jesus comes again. I put an asterisk by Israel and Palestine uh, because there were some good questions over the course of the week and try to bring some clarity this morning. So when we talk about Israel and Palestine, last week we noted that Palestine is more than Muslims, right? uh, that there are Jews living in Palestine and there are Christians living in Palestine, right? So I can have Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Muslims, we think about Israel, and we didn't talk about this last week, but when we think about Israel, not all of Israel is Jewish. Now, Israel might argue with me, right? but the majority of people living in Israel are agnostic. So they're Jewish culturally, but not theologically. They don't actually believe in the God of the Old Testament. So they're born into their Jewishness, but they're not practicing a faith. And so inside of Israel, there is a small faction of people called Zionists. And Zionists, Z-I-O-N-I-S-T, Zionists, Zionists are in many ways, I'm going to use this carefully, religious fanatics. Not unlike Hamas, in sort of a religious fanatic on the Islamic side. Zionists, this kind of small group, Inside of Israel, Zionists are all Jews, Orthodox, almost all of them, and they are fighting for the land for the reasons that we described last week, because it is the land of their ancestors, right? It's the, it's the land of their father. It is the land of Isaac, who is the child of the promise. And so not all of Israel 
is going to battle with Hamas, right? And not all of Palestine is trying to go to battle, in this case, with Israel or the Zionists. So, so in lots of ways, you just have to remember that inside of these kind of broad categories of Israel and Palestine are smaller groups. And those smaller groups and their behaviors are defining the whole. I just want to keep that in mind as we think about uh, what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Now today, today we're going to try to get at the question, who is Israel? And this is radically important, and Jesus has a lot to say about it. So will Paul, and we'll talk about Paul's kind of reflection on who is Israel a little bit next week. Today we're going to stick mostly with Jesus, right? There's a lot to say about who Israel actually is and how we answer that question. If people were to ask us, who is Israel? The answer to that question is radically important. So we're going to get to Jesus. You're going to need a Bible. Matthew 8 is where we're going to start. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 13. Uh, Like last week, I'm going to read most of these texts so that you can kind of just hang on and come along with me. Now, the context here, the context of Matthew chapter 8 is really a question of Rome and Israel, It really is a question of Rome and Israel. So you have to remember that Rome has her hand, right, in the land that we know to be Israel. They are in that place. Now, for the, for the Jewish thinking, certainly Jewish thinking at the time of Jesus, we still aren't thinking about the land as Israel, but people. Right? It's the people of Israel living in a place. And it is the people of Rome, by the way, it is the people of Rome who have come into that place, right? and are now subjecting the people to foreign rule. So again, in, in the mind of Jesus, we're still not thinking sociopolitically. We're thinking about people who are exercising authority. Now, it happens to be that we're in this land, the land that we know to be Israel and Palestine. And so there are two conflicting, again, two conflicting peoples here, right? The peoples of Rome and the peoples of what we know to be Israel and Palestine. So let's get into this text. I really would love to start uh, at verse 5, just for the sake of time. So verse 5, Matthew 8, it says this, When he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, that is Jesus said to the centurion, I will come and heal him. So already we're having an interaction between Rome and Israel. The people of Rome, centurion, right, and Jesus. The centurion replies, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. 
I want us to look specifically at the language that Jesus uses in verse 10. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel. Again, in the mind of Jesus, he's thinking about God's people. Right? So in all of the people, all of, all of the people, right, defined as Israel, I have found, right, I've not found anybody inside of those people with such faith as this one who's from Rome. It's a really interesting dynamic here. And then he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying, this is, this is pretty bold, actually. He's saying that there will be peoples who are outside of what is defined presently, right? There will be people who are coming from outside of Israel. In other words, there are going to be people coming from the nations, from the Gentiles. And they're going to come and sit at the table, listen, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, God's covenant begins with Abram, right? God's covenant begins with Abram, that his sons and descendants are going to bless the nations. They're going to be wide and long. And the covenant promises come down through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, who we're going to look at here in just a minute, who gets renamed Israel. Jesus is saying, listen, there are going to be people from the nations, right, from the pagan nations who are going to recline at the table, and I think this is sort of language for there are going to be people, nations, Gentiles, who are going to receive the covenant blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's hinting that there are people from the nations, from the pagan nations, who, because of what's going to happen, because of faith professed, they are going to be Israel. Right? They're going to be people, nations, foreign people, who are going to recline at the table with Abraham. Israel's going to expand. And it's going to be from the nations and the Gentiles. And then he says, while the sons of the king will be thrown into outer darkness, in other words, there's going to be people inside of Israel who are going to be out. They're going to miss what defines Israel. And they're going to be out. And they're going to be people from the nations, the pagan nations, the Gentiles, who, by definition, understand what Israel actually is and they'll be in. This is a really big deal. That Israel, however we're going to define Israel, and we'll get to this here in a minute, however we're going to define Israel, is more than I'm Jewish. Right? It's more than I'm a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, who is Israel? The answer to that question is more than that, and Jesus is saying it here as clear as can be. Now, a couple other things. If you were just to take the Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses the word Israel five times in Matthew. So he's going to talk about it five times, and in every circumstance, when Jesus mentions it, it is in reference to people, right? to the people of Israel. Israel's mentioned a total of 12 times in Matthew. So sometimes Jesus is referencing Israel. Other times other people are referencing Israel. Or maybe Matthew as the narrator is referencing Israel. And each time, each time that understanding is best understood as God's covenant people. If I'm circling anything, it's that. right? Israel defined as God's covenant people. 
bless you. Now, how do we get to this? We said it last week that Israel is a people, not primarily a land. How do we get to that? That's in Genesis chapter 32. So let's go back to Genesis. We'll get into the back story here. We're beginning at 22, so Genesis 32, 22. For those of us who grew up in and around the church, probably a familiar story. Genesis 32, beginning at verse 22, it says, That same night, he, that is Jacob, arose, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and they crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them, and he sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Some details about what we eat and what we don't eat. Right? It's a story of Jacob wrestling with what many commentators and what I hold to be God himself. Right? Now, what form of that, I don't know. I can't tell you that. But nevertheless, Jacob's convinced that he's seen God face to face. I'm taking him at face value here. Face value. Heard it? Just me? Okay. Saw God face to face, right? I'm taking it at face value that that is who he saw. And so God, in this case, as he wrestles Jacob, changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And so really, in the book of Genesis now, you're going to see that more often than not, Jacob is referred to by the name Israel rather than Jacob. So at the very beginning, Israel is a person, right? Israel is a person. So it begins, really, with Jacob, who is named Israel. Now let's go forward a little bit to Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verse 9. We're going to hear this again. This is important. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil out. 
And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, uh, Bethel meaning the house of God. So two things are happening here that are worth noting. One is that God revisits the covenant promises of Abraham. And he's telling Jacob, listen, those same covenant promises which I gave to Abraham, your grandfather, and Isaac, your father, they're coming to you as well. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. Right? That's what we just read. So Israel really begins as one person, but the covenant promise is that they are going to become a people. Right? A nation. A collection of people. And that collection of people carry the covenant promises. Land, right? for sure. But also the covenant commands, which is to bless the nations. So what begins as one person uh, becomes a people. Let's look at Genesis 35, 22, uh, 22b uh, through 26. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, which is Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and then the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, which is Rachel's servant, Dan and Ephtali. The sons of Zilpah, which is Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Now we know a lot about the sons of Jacob, right? If you've seen Joseph right, or know that story, this is one of those. It's just further highlighting that what began as one is moving to people, right? That what began as one person is going to be a people, and then, as the uh, Old Testament plays out, we're going to hear of the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of Israel, right? From the 12 sons of one dude, right? Of Jacob. So we're moving from one to people, right? One to people. Now, turn the page, page two. I'm pulling a quote here. Uh, from a great book called Jesus and Israel, One Covenant or Two. If you have all the spare time in the world and you would love to read something in depth about it, uh, just ask me, you can borrow it. All right, great book. Yep. When the Bible, I know that it continues to refer to Jacob as Jacob. Mm -hmm. It's really important. Why Uh, yes, I think in the beginnings, so he'll change to Israel quite frequently in the latter part of Genesis, and then references later will be Israel and sometimes Jacob. But again, I, I think some of that is writers trying to help you remember who we're talking about, right? Because sometimes in the Old Testament, when the reference is Israel, they're actually talking about the person, Jacob. And sometimes when the reference is Israel, they're talking about the descendants of Jacob, so sometimes I think the biblical writers are trying to help you say, am I talking about a dude? Or am I talking about the dude's dudes, right? <laughs> or am I talking about all them? So Israel is a people, right? And I, I'm pulling this quote because I think it's really on point for what's going to follow. It says, whenever those who claimed to be Israel assumed that Israel was a fixed and static entity, a people that was self-evident to all, the prophets of the Old Testament use strong warnings. See, the promises given to Israel were not like automatic guarantees to be received apart from faith 
and obedience. And I, I would circle that or highlight that, right? Faith and obedience. Because here's why. Consequently, because of Israel's historical disobedience, the prophets announced that in the end, it will be a remnant who is saved. There's some references, Isaiah 10, Amos 9, Micah 7, all talking about the remnant. Therefore, and this is what whole word is sort of making, therefore, quote, not all Israelis truly belong to Israel. It's not only a Pauline teaching, which we're going to look at next week, but it is a summary of the prophetic warnings of the entire Old Testament. Being Israel is about faith and obedience. That's what you circled. So the Bible uses Israel as the more common designation of, and here it is, true people of God. The Bible uses Israel as the more common designation, the true people of God, his elect community, the people of his covenant. What Holwerda is arguing, that the prophets of the Old Testament are arguing, that Paul is going to argue in Romans 9, is just because you are born Jewish doesn't mean you're Israel. Israel is about faith and obedience, about living in the covenant promises. Israel is the true people of God, right? his elect community, the people of his covenant. So the question still in front of us is who is the true Israel? Now, to get at this question, we're going to go into Matthew's gospel because I believe that Matthew's gospel is trying to prove a point. And the point is, who is Israel? So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1 in some of the most gripping reading of the entirety of Matthew's gospel. Uh, we're going to look at the genealogy. <laughs> Woo! All right. Now, who wants to read all these names? Anybody? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Just kidding. I'm going to look at some very specific parts of this genealogy. Uh, some more specific parts of this genealogy, because uh, we're not going to have the time really to go through all of it. So let's look at Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, the book, as he's talking about what's about to happen, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now let's pause here for just a moment, because Matthew, in the recording of his genealogy, has just said a boatload. Uh, he's not written very many words, but he wants to make a point. That Jesus is whom? The son of David. Now, the son of David, let's just pause here. The son of David, right, the son of David is the rightful king. Right? When we think of David of the Old Testament, we sort of lift him up as kind of the, you know, the, uh, the best perfect example of Israel's king. He wasn't perfect, but he was a king after God's own heart. And there is a promise, a promise made ultimately to David in 2 Samuel 7, that his son, right, that one of his descendants is going to be the true king, and that his reign will last into eternity. So when Matthew says Jesus is the son of David, he is saying very clearly from the beginning that Jesus is that son the rightful king of God's people. Hmm? The rightful king of God's people. 
But he's also saying what? That he is the son of whom? Abraham. Now, why does this matter? Because we know that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest of the people, that the descendants of Abraham are carrying the covenant promises. The descendants of Abraham, interestingly, are Israel. They're the people of God's covenant. They bear it in their bodies via circumcision, but they're also living out the commands to bless the nations. So when Matthew says right at the beginning that Jesus is the son of David, he is saying that Jesus is the rightful king of God's people. And he is saying that Jesus is God's people. In other words, right, Jesus represents all of God's people. He's both the king and the people. Bless you. So it's really important. Matthew, from the very beginning, is saying, let me put it in clearer terms, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel is supposed to be. And he's the fulfillment of all that the kings were to be. Matthew is saying from the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is Israel and Israel's king. In other words, Matthew is going to make an argument that moves us back this direction. That if we want to know who Israel is, the true Israel, Matthew is saying, then it's not about the people, because the people, if we're to read the Old Testament, don't live out the covenant promises or commands of God very well. Read the prophets, right? They pretty much suck at it. And so, God's got to do something to remedy those covenant promises. And what's his remedy? It's to send the true Israel. The one who can be Israel perfectly. That's what Matthew is saying here. He is Israel, and he's also Israel's king. It is also worth noting in Matthew's gospel, a couple of irregularities here. And I think they're very purposeful on Matthew's part. There are four women, really five women, but four women in particular who are in the genealogy of Jesus. None of those four women are Jewish or Israeli. Uh, those you have in here, uh, you have Ruth. Who else are you going to have? Bathsheba? Rahab? Who's the other one? Tamar. That's right. Those four, none of whom are Israeli. In other words, being Israel is more than just genes. Right? It's more than just pure descent. And interestingly, the other irregularity is that if we're talking about genes and descent, then Jesus should be the son of Joseph. That's what a line would come through. But as we read here, and this is verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. In other words, the line comes through Mary, and we know 
the Holy Spirit. Is this the first reference of the Gentiles? In Matthew's gospel, yep. So in many ways, I mean, if, I, if I'm a reader at the time of Jesus, or even after Jesus, in the time of Paul, and I'm reading this genealogy, it is shocking to see the four women listed. Because they're, quote, not Israel. What Matthew is saying is that there will be plenty of people who are outside of just genes and pure descent that are going to be defining Israel. Even in the line of Jesus, who is, as he says, the true Israel. Now, Matthew's going to keep proving his point. So let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, 13 uh, through 18. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I have called my son. So if we just stop here for a moment, Matthew is referencing a text in Hosea chapter 11. And he's saying this little move to Egypt is a fulfillment of that prophetic text. What's happening with Jesus and Joseph and Mary as they go into Egypt is the fulfillment of the prophetic text of Hosea 11. So, let's go to Hosea 11 and see what Hosea has to say. Now, some of you are like, where's Hosea? Great question. If you don't know, you can use the table of contents and get you there. Latter prophet. Hosea 11. So if you're Joel or Amos, those are a little bit bigger, right? Hosea is immediately before Joel, if that's helpful. If you're using uh, digital technology, awesome. It's wherever your thumb is. That's great. Uh, Hosea 11, remember, this is what Matthew's saying. This movement into Egypt is the fulfillment of what's happening in Hosea 11. So let's just read it here briefly. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, we can remember, before we dig any more, we, we can remember that God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. Hmm? How did he rescue them? Who did God send to rescue Israel? Moses, right? Ten plagues, we know that story. At the end of ten plagues, Israel is released out of Egypt. Hmm? They're taken out of their captivity, they're taken out of their bondage, they're set into freedom and being led ultimately to the promised land. So on one hand, Hosea right now is talking about the past, right? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Just reminding you that I've rescued my people, Israel, out of bondage. The more they were called, the more they went away, <laughs> They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. We're back to this. I rescued them. Right? I'm bringing them to the land that I promised to them. Faith and obedience, not so awesome at it. That's what Hosea is saying. 
Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. So even in all of the disobedience, even in all of the wrong of the people of Israel, God is saying, Hosea is saying, right, that God has been present and constant with his kindness and his love to come to his people. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against the cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So they were in Egypt once, God rescued them, loved on them, they're still not awesome at obedience, and so they're going to go into, not Egypt, but they are going to go into bondage, this time in Assyria, they're going to go into the Babylonian captivity, why? Because they're awful at being God's people. Verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zebulim? My heart recoils within him. Compassion, it grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall go trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with his lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and he's faithful to the Holy One. This picture in 10 and 11, particularly, is what I believe Matthew is referring to when he says this is the moment that he's fulfilled. God is saying, yep, my people are going to go into bondage. They're going to go into exile. They're going to go into captivity. It's not going to be Egypt. It's going to be Assyria and Babylon. And here's the thing. I still love them. I still care for them. And so I'm going to rescue them. Right? They, this is verse 11. They shall come trembling like birds out of Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. Again, God is going to bring his people out of captivity. He's going to rescue them from slavery and set them into freedom. Now, what we know is that even when Israel comes back from the Babylonian captivity, their ability to walk in obedience is still awful. Right? It's still awful. And so even in this next freedom, on that side of the captivity, God's people still can't live out the covenant promises and commands. And so Matthew is saying, all right, God's done waiting on his people. He's going to solve the problem. And he's going to solve it through Jesus. So Matthew is saying this flight into Egypt is necessary for the saving, certainly, of Jesus before Herod's going to kill all those under the age of two, all those Israeli-born children. But it is also, Matthew says, significant because Hosea says that out of Egypt will come Israel into the land of freedom. 
So we know in Matthew 2 that Jesus is going to go into Egypt, and several verses later, he's going to return. What we see in this flight to Egypt is what's happening in the Old Testament with Israel. In other words, Jesus is embodying Israel. He's going into Egypt, into the place of captivity, into the place of exile. And we know in Matthew 2 that he's going to return. And when he returns, we're going to have a, quote, new Israel. Defined here. Now let's keep going in Matthew 2. So pop all the way back. I'm going to pick back up at 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is a really a sort of interesting reference to Jeremiah, and you can look at it in 31.15. But for the, for the sake of what we're talking about, Rachel, that he references here, Rachel is buried near Ramah, this place that he references, right? A voice was heard in Ramah weeping, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. So Rachel's buried near the land of Ramah. And the land of the Ramah, if we get into Jeremiah, is where finally God's people are going to be sort of carried away into the Assyrian and Babylonian exile. It's at Ramah that God takes his people and puts them into exile. And so if you go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying, as God's people are being ripped out of the promised land and taken captive, Rachel is weeping for Israel. Now the reference here is to all of the women who are weeping at the death, certainly, of their young sons. It's almost like, it's almost like God's people Israel is still in bondage and still captive to the ways of the world. But by referencing this Jeremiah text, Matthew is going to say that there is hope coming in a new Israel. And if we were to read Jeremiah 31, the rest of the text, we'd hear of the new Israel on the other side of the captivity. So Matthew, it's interesting, Matthew in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is trying to say the same thing. Jesus is Israel. He is the true Israel. He's going to go in captivity and come out of it. He's going to make the ceasing of Rachel and God's people stop. He is the true Israel. He is the one who's going to fulfill the covenant promises and commands that God set up at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we could do this once more in Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. So let's look at that just briefly. We'll know the text really well. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 13. 
Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So I want us just to think about the Exodus story for just a moment. All right, an Exodus story for just a moment. So Moses rescues the people of Israel after the last plague, and they are on the run from the armies of Egypt. And as they're on the run, they come to a dead end. Do you remember what the dead end was? The Red Sea. I want us to pay attention to that. Right? The road from slavery to freedom is blocked by the Red Sea. Right? So they stand on the edge of the Red Sea, this hurdle, and they look at it and think, what are we going to do? And what does God do? He acts on behalf of his people. How? Yeah, he parts the Red Sea. And God's people, listen, God's people walk through water, don't they? They walk through water, right? The walls of water. Slavery on one side of the water. What's on the other side? Freedom. This is a beautiful picture in the book of Exodus, right? That to get from slavery to freedom, God's got to walk me through the water. Now, when they get over to this freedom side, they're going to wander for a while before they finally get into the promised land. They're going to get a picture of it. They're going to disobey again. That's how it works. And then they're forced to wander for 40 years before they finally inherit it. But should we see, is Matthew asking us to see in the baptism of Jesus, on one hand, slavery on one side, and freedom on the other. Jesus says this is to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm going to give you the picture of what it's supposed to be when we move from slavery to freedom. It is also, interestingly, I think a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. So if you want to go to Isaiah 42, let's get there really quickly. You guys are doing great. This is all over the Bible. Isaiah 42. Forty-two, one. This is a prophetic moment of Isaiah, a prophetic moment of promise and comfort. Here's what Isaiah says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law." On and on and on it goes here in Isaiah 42 about this servant 
who God is going to pour his spirit upon in order to bring justice to the nations. And you can hear in the echoes of God's voice, this is my son whom I love, my chosen one. Interestingly, the spirit descends on Jesus when he comes up out of the water. And we know that if we read the rest of the gospel, he's going to be proclaiming justice and righteousness. In other words, Jesus is embodying the servant of Isaiah 42. He is embodying who Israel is supposed to be and who Israel's kings and Messiah is supposed to be. You could also see it in Psalm 2.7. So go one more time to Psalm 2, verse 7. So Psalm 2 uh, is often considered kind of the royal psalm. We know uh, from history that Psalm 2 was typically sung as one of the songs of worship when the kings of Israel were anointed and put in place. And so when you get to verse 7 then, the psalmist and the people of God would be singing, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the king of Israel, the referent here in Psalm 7, right? The king of Israel embodying who Israel is supposed to be is to live out. You can hear the echoes of Abraham's covenant. You are my son. I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of your earth your possession. Your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, and you're going to bless the nations. You can hear those covenant promises and commands in an echo here in Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is supposed to lift up the king and say, these are the things that you lead us in. And at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, we hear all of those echoes in the words of the Father, this is my son whom I love my chosen one. We should hear the echo of Psalm 2. He will bring blessing to the nations. We should hear Psalm 42 and justice and righteousness to all people. Matthew is making the point again and again and again and again and again that Jesus is Israel. That he is who Israel is supposed to be. Now we don't have time We don't have time today to dive into his temptation in the desert. But remember what I said about the story of Exodus. They come out of the Red Sea. They're allowed to look at the promised land. They disobey in the process, and God has them wander how long? Forty years. Yep. Jesus is going to be in the desert, quote, wandering for how many days and nights? Forty. Matthew wants us to see again Israel's wandering, but this time in the person of Jesus. Jesus is Israel. The temptations which Jesus has to undergo, it's a beautiful story. First one is he's hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days and nights, and the devil lays out bread for him. We should probably hear the echoes of manna in the desert wanderings. 
And Israel complaining that back in Egypt there was like real food, not just this bread from heaven. So when Jesus says, no, I'm going to live on uh, bread alone, see what he's doing? He's embodying Israel and all that they couldn't be. If we go to the other temptations to test the Lord, to worship the enemy, I mean, we could see all of those things happening in the desert wanderings of Israel in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. So the point is this, right? Matthew's trying to make this point. He does it through the rest of his gospel, some of which we'll look at next time. Who is Israel? The first way we should answer that question as followers of Jesus is who is Israel? Jesus is. He's the true Israel. He's the one through whom the covenant blessings of Abraham reached the ends of the earth. Matthew is trying to paint one picture. Jesus is the true Israel, bringing covenant blessings to all of the nations. So the last couple of minutes, I know this is a lot just to get to one point, right? To get to one point. But as we go on from here, and this is what's going to matter as we start thinking about then next week, right? If Jesus is the true Israel, the one who brings covenant blessings to the nations, and we, through baptism, are connected to those covenant blessings because Christ is in us, then the question is, who is Israel today? God's covenant people today, right? The covenant that Jesus fulfills with Jesus in us. Who is Israel today? The answer is this, the Christian church. So when you hear things like, well, the Jews are God's people, God's covenant people. That is not a New Testament understanding. They were God's people. But Matthew 15, and we'll look at that next week, makes it really clear that they are rejecting the one who is Israel. And because they reject the one who is Israel, they are no longer in the line of Israel. Those who have faith and live in obedience to the true Israel is whom? The church. How one understands this question of who is Israel, specifically that Jesus is the true Israel and those of us who have Jesus in us, right? The church, the Christian church today being Israel is different from a lot of other people. But answering this question makes all the difference when we think about American foreign policy towards Israel, right? To a land and to a nation versus God's people. I'll give you a little bit of a preview, and then we're going to cut it, uh, cut it off today. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about Paul as he talks about the church being the new Israel. And we're going to look a little bit at current or sort of recent history since 1948 when Israel became a state and a nation. And what I believe, what I believe was our misunderstanding of who Israel is 
that led to the foreign policy that continues to drive American foreign policy with Israel today. There are those inside of the Christian church, and we'll talk about this at length next week, who are called dispensationalists, and those, that group of people continues to teach that Israel as a land must be established and the temple rebuilt where David first had the temple built before Jesus will come again. Because those Christians are reading Israel in the New Testament as this understanding. They actually miss what Matthew and Paul is doing, redefining Israel. And so if I'm somebody who believes that the land of Israel has to be established and the temple rebuilt, then I'm going to guard it at all costs if I want Jesus to come back. But we believe, friends, we believe that the new Israel is the Christian church. It's already been established. You'll remember the New Testament talks about that you are the temple of the Lord because God's spirit is living in you. The temple's been built. It's you. Jesus can come anytime he wants now. So next week, we're going to try to pull that apart a little bit and try to understand what we're doing. It's a lot, I know. Hang on, if you can't be here, it'll be on the podcast for sure. Now, get out in the name of Jesus, all right? Go. Go.